It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 316. Yeah, he's up in the sky. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show was recorded on the 21st of March, 2018. Today's episode, Red Arrow's engineer killed in RAF Valley jet crash. United suspends pet cargo flights after recent problems. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, 303 Squadron, Kosciuszko. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 316 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me today... Doctor? We have from... Doctor? Doctor. Her beautiful lakeside cottage in South Carolina. A doctor. Skydiver. Marathon runner. Strength training junkie. And an IPA connoisseur, commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you. Glad to be doing a show today. Looking forward to it. And yeah, don't have much else to add right at this moment. So All right. Very let's just good. get started. Let's do that. And also joining us from across the pond, from his country estate outside of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. And I think uh, Dana's found his way back from uh, some beach somewhere with his hog. Not quite sure what he was doing down there with a, a pig. But, uh, I'm sure he's going to tell us. In fact, <laughs> here he is, right here. I can hear the hog right now from wow his mobile studio in Providence, Rhode Island now. Barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier. Soon to be Captain Dana. Hi, y'all. Roll on. Let's go. Let's get going with the show because it's going to be a fun one today. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm always worried when Dana says that. <laughs> you shouldn't be. All right. Well, we're uh, we're all looking forward to it, I guess. Uh, well, let's start with uh, let's start with you, Dana. I think that you're just chomping at the bit to tell us what's been going on since we uh, last heard from you. Uh, what was that Saturday morning when you were down in Daytona Beach? Yeah, uh, I'll be happy to talk. Uh, all right. Now, of course, this might be like three hours, so no, no, might not need it, you know, to... the Reader's Digest uh, version. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm only kidding. I got home from Daytona Beach uh, successfully after a very fun bike week and uh, enjoyed that. Again, came back to work for a nice four-day trip. It was supposed to be three legs on Monday, two legs on Tuesday, two legs today, and then three legs tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, that didn't happen that way. 
Yesterday was a day from uh, the down under hot place where some devil lives. And uh, it was just a, a reroute nightmare culminated with weather and mechanical issues. And I don't really want to get a whole lot into it because I might just get really upset again. <laughs> it was just a bad day. And we'll leave it at that. Other than the fact that they rerouted us uh, nine hours in advance of when the reroute, uh, when the flight was actually going to depart when they had plenty of time to cover it. So I'm not going to say a whole lot. Today has been a night, another nightmare too, because uh, it's a little more interesting um, today in Providence, I had a conversation, uh, with the folks this morning, cause then got another reroute this morning and said, well, it shows that with an 88, why are you rerouting us? Cause we're flying our airplane uh, on, on the same airplane. So come to find out when we get to Atlanta that they had substituted the MD 80 with a 717 and called out a reserve crew because while well, flying into Northeast. Uh, Nor'easter up here in the Northeast, so why not uh, get a brand new captain that isn't even consolidated to fly into the Northeast um, in the Nor'easter? And the real reason, as I found out later on, is that the localizer in ILS system, when it's snowing in Providence, is churned off if it's wet snow. Don't know why. Got told that by two separate sources from the OCC. And uh, they had substituted because the MD is not capable of doing our, our NAV approach. And, well, then we flew up here, halfway up here, talked to uh, dispatcher, uh, not dispatcher, but uh, the folks that make the uh, operational decisions on cancel flights, change flights, equipment, so forth, and said, well, if we can't fly up there now, you already changed the next flight. Well, the next flight after that is my airplane coming in to do the flight tomorrow morning. Um, why are we going to Providence to deadhead here? Uh, you end up going to have, have to send a 717 here or an Airbus, but not a Mad Dog because the ILS is still not going to be able to work. They said, well, it might be dry snow. I said, wait a minute, time out. You mean tell me the ILS doesn't work in wet snow, but it works fine in dry snow? I Everybody knows that, that, Dana. So, Come on. Yeah, of course. What, you what know, it's common knowledge. I mean, that's wet. Yeah. Is, it, is it just snow I, I don't get it anyway i don't get it either so this is from two separate sources on different calls so i gave up and then about halfway through the flight the flight attendant comes back with a reroute message that we are now not flying tomorrow morning because the flight tonight after i got on the phone them three times is no longer coming up to providence as a mad dog it's now a 717 so needless to say i don't know what time i'm leaving tomorrow or if i'm leaving tomorrow uh we'll see uh on much better news uh, today, 26 years ago, my wife and I became a real thing. We started dating officially. So 26 years ago today, March 21st, that's a, a very positive thing. And talking about a not really good thing is next month is my last month. As And we're going to talk about it a little bit later, I see in the notes. But last next month is my last month as a first officer. And uh, I don't know if you looked at your schedule I did. Is that your last trip on the 88? Second to last okay. trip. Okay. Yeah. I saw first your name as a first officer on uh, one of my trips next month. Yes. I Second to last trip, I get to fly with Captain Jeff on a three-day trip. And my absolute last trip, none other than Gary Donato. Oh, wow. Great. And my third to last trip, I, I was tr trying to get with my – I actually requested all three of you, my other buddy, Tony – 
uh, a junior pilot for some reason got the trip. I didn't get it. And uh, then that junior pilot, I contacted him asking if I could swap with him. He said, well, no, I can't do a three or two or four day. He said, but if you get a three day that meets these parameters, I'll be happy to go ahead and swap with you so that you can fly with your buddy. I went ahead, dropped my four day trip, picked up the three day trip that I could get and then sent him a text and asked him if he'd be happy to take it. And he said, oh, no, I'm sorry. I forgot my brother's going to be down there. And oh, by the way, too bad. I was like, are you freaking? I, I about, that was all part of yesterday. I about came out of my off my rocker because here, I, I, you know, I'm never going to be able to fly with these guys again. And he is because of one day just not willing to swap with me after I jumped through all the hoops to make him happy. And I really, I'm praying that the reroute gods come down on vengeance on him because that's really uncool. <laughs> that is just uncool. That is not cool. Yeah. So I'm sorry. To anyways, hear that. that's been my week so far. Yeah. Does so this Blake realize you're going to be a captain one day and you'll be flying with him? No, he's a uh, captain too, though. Right? No, he's well, a first officer. That's right. He's a first yeah. officer. Yeah. And when I, you know, I asked him if he had some time to, if I mind, if I asked him a question and, you know, we got in conversation and I said to him, you know, I have a four day trip, you know, any chance uh, you would be willing to, cause my, my whole story, I don't need to repeat it again. And he said, I only fly Monday, Tuesday and Wednesdays. And I've looked at my phone and I said to myself, what did he just say? He's about 150, 200 numbers junior to me, and he only flies Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays. Then he went into the reason why. I now understand he's got a special needs kid at home. Okay, I get that. But the way he came across was very arrogant. And then now he turns around and uh, does this to me. I uh, That's not cool. I mean, when you, when you say you're going to do something for somebody, uh, and this is a, a life event here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm not happy. I'm sorry. Nor is Tony. Yep. Nor is Tony. I, I saw him today. Yeah. So understand your frustration completely. That's not That's a good not thing. Cool. No. All right. Well, Dana, I'm sorry to hear about your your troubles on your trip. I, I hope the rest of the trip goes better. Uh, let's see, Nick. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I have had a trip to San Francisco. Very nice. Enjoyed that thoroughly. Put out a crew log if uh, for the patrons while I was there. We had a little meetup while I was there, um, which I'm hoping we can perhaps hear a little of uh, uh, in a moment. When I came back, um, I have uh, basically been rushing around trying to do plane tales. But today I was supposed to be going over to... Um, St. Benedict's School, which have an aviation group, and um, they're up in London. And uh, Rob, the uh, the vice headmaster, I think he's the vice principal, whatever, um, a very nice chap, had invited me up there to uh, give a talk uh, to their youngsters, always keen to encourage new young people into the industry. Sadly, uh, my car uh, produced a, one of those red engine warning lights and went into limp mode so i had to turn it around and i took it back into my local garage and tried to get them to fix it they couldn't so it was stuck there i didn't have contact details by the time i got back home and 
and phoned the school, it was all way too late to do it. So my apologies to Rob and the youngsters of St. Benedict's School Aviation Group. Uh, we've made a new date for that talk in a few weeks' time, and I will uh, try and hope uh, that my car holds out this time. I'm sorry. to. Ha- it's always a hassle to have car trouble, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Oh, and I was all, all dolled up, all set to go. And uh, yeah, that, that rather uh, pulled the rug from under me, but I'm sure we'll get it going next time. So tell us about the uh, meetup you had in San Francisco on a brighter note. Oh, it was excellent. Uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, straight after the show, really. Um, and uh, we went to the Thirsty Bear. Um, uh, and I won't go on to it about too much because there's a bit of audio, I think, Jeff, if you've got that. I believe we have that right now, so here we go. Okay, everybody, it's Captain Nick sitting here in the Thirsty Bear, and we've got another San Francisco meetup, which is really good because we've got some wonderful people here. And uh, the first person I'm just going to introduce you to is Mike who is uh, here. How's it going, Mike? Uh, pretty good, Captain Nick. Anything new between the now and the last time we met up? Uh, not really. I did go to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Oh, tell us more. Uh, they have a great set there, uh, a lot of rockets, a Saturn V rocket there, and also the Space Shuttle Atlantis. Oh, wow. That must be pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Excellent. Good to see you. We're going to keep this short. I keep calling you Jamie. It's, yes. it's, it's Jaime. 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 Why is it? Jaime. Why does it start with a J? Uh, because it's uh, a different sound in Spanish. So you got some. I'm sorry. I'm making fun of your name, <laughs> which is very unfair of me. You got some great news, Jaime. Give, give us a quick rundown. Well, uh, finally things are moving forward in aviation for me. Um, I was able to find a flight school that was willing to work with my particular situation that was uh, trying to figure out what to do with my uh, previous military training. And uh, fortunately, we worked with a designated pilot examiner, and um, he gave us good news that uh, all of the training that I have is gonna be, it's gonna carry towards the requirements that I'm gonna have to do for my different certificates here in the US. So I'm gonna be working with, uh, with a flight school uh, here in the local area in the Bay Area and they're going to help me out uh, move forward fi- finally. Well, that is absolutely brilliant news. Now, if all those hours are recognized, where does that put you? Uh, that puts me just shy of uh, 400 hours, and that puts me, uh, I'm just going to prepare for my um, private pilot certificate, then uh, work right away in my instrument rating, then uh, commercial, and hopefully CFI and get myself up and running. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Well done. That's fantastic news. Hi, Dave. How's things? Doing well, Nick. Thank you. And uh, the rest of the APG crew and community having a good day here in San Francisco. Turns out Jaime here next to me is actually joining the flight school that I'm at. So uh, I'm working. The same school? It turns out. Yeah, we just found out five minutes ago. So I'm working on my instrument rating. He's coming to join us. Uh, I also work line service for that company. So we might be colleagues and uh, and fellow students, so that should be fun. Isn't that brilliant? What a small world. Yeah, So, and it sounds like he's got about three times the amount of hours I have, so maybe he can teach me a few things as well. <laughs> well, I think uh, we can all learn from each other. Every day is a school day, as they say. Sure thing, yeah. Yep. So just keep, keep working on that instrument rating, and, uh, but for now, I'm just going to enjoy the beer. But yeah, you, you're a bit stalled with the weather, aren't you? Well, like we were talking about, we shouldn't be stalled with the weather. It's an instrument rating, but... Yeah. 
Not yeah. too good here right it's now. It's those cross countries. They're a pain. Sure. Sure, yeah. But we'll get it done. Keep, keep plugging away. Well, we're always looking forward to hearing more news about your progress. And here's lovely Landon. Landon, how's it going, man? Hey, it's going pretty good. How is everybody? Uh, hello, Jan Sears. Sucks you can't make it, man, but oh well. There's always another uh, APG uh, meetup in San Francisco if the bin liner goes down again. Um, friend Nick Gourmet. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you didn't make it either. Nick, glad to see you here. It's been... Uh, it's been a long time coming, but uh, hey, it's awesome, as usual, all the time. Uh, yeah, I missed the last one. You had a good time with Jan, yeah? Yeah, so uh, it was great. Last time uh, we did do, no, we didn't do a, uh, gosh, what do you call that? <laughs> I don't know, sex? No, no, we didn't do that. So you did any flying? No, we didn't do I did fly in, actually. I sure did fly in. It was a good time. Me and Jaime actually flew in on the uh, Piper Arrow from San Jose. Oh, excellent fun. Yes, it was. But, uh, hey, fun times. And uh, I'm a little uh, behind on some shows, but I can... Hey, uh, you and me both. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Here's the lovely Connie. Connie, what's new with you? Oh, well, uh, just glad we got this little impromptu meetup. Glad you're uh, in town here. And good to see everybody else out from the Bay Area here. We've got quite a little uh, group of APGers here, so it's fun to see everyone again. And... Um, yeah, like I was saying to Captain Nick, the timing is good because next weekend I'm going to be out at the uh, Women in Aviation International Conference out in Reno. So uh, if there are any other APG uh, people who are going to be out at that, um, please uh, find me. I'm on Slack. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll have to let you know how that goes. I'll uh, write or, or call in to APG. And keep please send us some audio, Connie. We'd love to hear from you. Excellent. I will. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Right. From our little impromptu, and the only reason it's impromptu was because I wasn't sure I was going to be here, uh, meet up here at uh, the, uh, was it the Hungry Bear, the Thirsty Bear, the Bear Bear, something like that, in San Francisco. Uh, we're just waiting for Fred to arrive, but as usual, he's late. Ah, well, I'll catch him another time. Cheers, everybody. Back to Jeff in the studio. Well, thank you, Nick, for your on-location report at the Thirsty Bear, or whatever Yeah, we is. were all very thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That was a great uh, piece of meetup feedback. Thank you very much for doing that. And it was great to hear from everybody. And uh, we'll put a picture of this uh, meetup in the show notes so you can see this great, good-looking group of people. Looks like they took the picture after uh, Fred arrived. Uh, yeah. And also my rest of my uh, flight deck crew pitched up. So. Uh, oh. I don't see them yeah, in the picture, we, though. Or, or, no, or is no, it? that okay. was after the picture was taken. So uh, Fred had his, uh, his buddy um, for there, uh, Jean-Francois, and um, I, uh, Johan from Sweden, and um, uh, oh God, Daniel, okay, no, oh Christ, I've forgotten the name of Looks <laughs> like <stop> Daniel. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Uh, his surname's Alan. I remember that. I don't Gavin. worry about it. Gavin. Gavin was there as well. So they, it turned out to be a really good do. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you know what? There's another uh, something that somebody did for you. I think that he was, was he present at the meetup or he couldn't make it, but he made up for it by doing this video? Oh, now Jan, the man, uh, uh, as you probably know, uh, works for the California Highway Patrol, a Golden Gate Division, and flies the um, the Gips uh, Aero. Um, 
Aerovan, I think it is. It's kind of caravan, single engine thing, but it's got one of those amazing um, uh, villain chasing cameras in its belly. And uh, he was working that uh, day when uh, we got airborne, and uh, he managed to get some pictures of me as we got airborne, which was fantastic. And then, very kindly, uh, Nev uh, assembled them into a nice little uh, sort of minute-long um, cut sequence uh, so that uh, we could have that. And I posted it around the Internet, but uh, maybe, maybe not everyone's seen it. Okay, well, maybe uh, the folks that are watching the video would like to see it, and let's see if this works here. Let me go over here to the control board and share my screen. And again, if you're listening to the audio-only podcast, you need to either go and click down below if you're looking at the show notes on the uh, website and uh, watch the video of the uh, of the hangout <laughs> of the uh, recording today. Of course, you'll probably have to scroll a couple hours uh, before you actually get to this point <laughs> in the show because <laughs> we've been at this for qu quite some time. Again, technical issues, but um, let's see. And we'll also uh, put a link to this in the show notes. That's probably going to be easier for you uh, to watch if you're listening to the audio only show. So um, let me, uh, without further ado, hit the screen share button and uh, select next video and here we go i'm going to hit this and this That is just gorgeous. Yeah, Jan did a lovely job. I might uh, really uh, got to thank him for that. Uh, um, yeah, so he's got an amazing camera underneath, and I love the infrared. Uh, that I was going to say that was my favorite part of it is uh, the infrared view, and you could see the uh, uh, the exhaust coming out of the engines, and that was really really cool. Yeah, or hot as the case may be. Mm -hmm. And then you can see the uh, uh, the, the uh, exhaust plumes coming out uh, when the latter part of that uh, video. Very very cool. Yeah, what was uh, pretty impressive was uh, how warm the uh, the windshields are because because they're heated on the ground and uh, they uh, they stood out re really clearly because they're pretty hot at that point when you're not flying they're just uh chuntering away so yeah and no, i i loved it it was uh, very kind so my thanks to you jan for that that's absolutely brilliant uh, i have a question did uh you have the apu uh running at the time no we'd uh we shut it down after start okay. so that was just the residual heat sadly uh jan was expecting me to, apparently to get airborne off one of the two eights uh he said it was all set up with a plan <sighs> in mind to f f shoot me going over the city and of course, uh, the runway in use was uh, one right. We were light enough to get airborne off one right, short of taxi. So without thinking about it, we said, well, no, no, we're, we're happy with one right. Um, so uh, that <laughs> he was kind of going. Screwed up his to, plans. <laughs> yeah, ruined his plan. I had to reorganize life. But, uh, but thanks anyway. No, it turned out great nonetheless. Really cool. Yes. Okay, again, if you're listening to the audio only, just look for this link in the show notes and uh, and watch it because I think you'll be very impressed. 
Uh, Steph, so uh, what have you been up to? I know it hasn't been long since uh, our last show recording, just a few days, but... Uh, uh, what have I been up to? Nothing aviation related. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick mentioned car troubles. Car mm-hmm. troubles. Hmm. Hmm. So I have a new car, as I think I mentioned last show, which is currently in the shop. Not what? my fault. Yeah. <laughs> Why? So one of the, um, I, I guess this was over the weekend, maybe Sunday or Monday, coming into Monday, I went out into the garage and I looked at the car and I'm looking at the, it's a Jeep with a hard top. So it's a removable hard top on the back of the Wrangler. And I'm looking at the window on the passenger side and it just didn't seem to be sitting quite flush where it's supposed to. And I looked at it and the seal on the bottom had come loose and you could actually, you know, reach up inside the the car underneath the window and say, well, that's not supposed to be the case. So I had some some rain this week, so I made sure I took it in. It went in, actually, it was supposed to be the first appointment this morning. I took it in yesterday before it started raining. And uh, apparently it takes two days to change a piece of glass for some reason. So hopefully I'll have it back tomorrow. But in the meantime, I have a lovely minivan to drive, which let me tell you how thrilled I am about that. <laughs> It's so not too car. bad. <laughs> what, <laughs> what kind of minivan is it? <laughs> a grand caravan, a Dodge Grand Caravan. It's terrible. It's awful. I will. Ne- I, I know everyone says this, but I will never buy one. <laughs> oh come on! You're practicing to be a mother. And drastic would have to happen. You got to k- take the kids to worse soccer than, practice. Worse come on. than children. No. No. Okay. They can go in the jeep. <laughs> So that's all that's happening in my life that's new and exciting. So um, is is that Jeff blushing? It might be. I don't know. I'm I just having so. fun. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here, man. And I'm happy that everything's working again <laughs> and that you can all hear me. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else mm-hmm. before we move on uh, to nah, this? Let's, uh, let's get this show on the road. Oh, let's do that. Okay, here we go. Let's do the Java Jive. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. That's the the Jeff Smith and the Java Jive tailored version for the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And we're... He's singing about Java and the Coffee Fund because that is your way to support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do so. So again, as we always say, if you need your money for sustenance and shelter and all that good stuff, then, oh yeah, flight lessons, the most important part, please don't send us any money. But if you have a couple shekels here and there you want to throw our way, please do by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Since the last show, the PayPal, the uh, classic coffee fund method, Chris Randall is a recurring payment or contribution. And we have some new producers. Yay! At uh, Patreon, they're new patrons. We have Zach Holderfield, Texas Anlashock, Dom Burke, and Tim Hitchcock. All new producers. Actually, Dom is a new executive producer. So thank you very much, Dom, for that. If you want to learn more about the Coffee Fund, become part of the Coffee Fund cadre, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee today. (laughs) 
Okay, the first item in the news folder is an article about the U.S. Air Force C-5M Super Galaxy. Performs a nose gear up landing again. And I, oh wait, that's not a good thing. I guess they uh, didn't want to perform a nose gear up landing. It's the second time, it says, according to this article, in less than a year that a C-5M Super Galaxy ended up having to land without its nose wheels extended. I, th- I think there are four nose wheels on that big beast. Uh, let's see. There were 11 personnel on board, but no injuries reported. Noteworthy, although this was the first incident of this kind for the 433rd airlift wing, it's the second time a C-5M landed on its nose in less than one year. We just talked about that. The uh, a, a Super Galaxy, I guess sometime last year, performed a nose gear up landing at Rota Air Base in Spain. As a consequence of the second malfunction of the C-5's nose landing gear, the U.S. Air Force, oh, for that one uh, earlier, or last year, the U.S. Air Force initially grounded 18 Galaxy cargo planes based at Dover Air Force Base out of 56 flown by the Air Mobility Command pending further investigation. But uh, let's see, and that was on July 18th. But on the very next day, uh, the... AMC, I should know what that stands for, uh, something mobility, air, air something mobility command. General Carlton Everhart ordered a fleet-wide assessment of the command's 56 C-5s. And uh, what they found on the during the assessment is that the ball screw drive assembly, I was going to say, I, it's obviously the ball screw drive assembly causing the problem, but they didn't ask me. I mean, anyone knows that. I, I know. Don't. Come on. Yeah. Um, Jeez was causing issues with the extension and retraction of the nose landing gear. And we all know how embarrassing that can be. Yeah, it is. Uh, anyway, um, so anyway, it goes on to say that uh, they're they're trying to figure out what's going on with this. They're going to get it fixed. And those big, giant, beautiful airplanes will be flying again, I'm sure, soon. So uh, there you go. There's a little military news for those of you who uh, crave that kind of thing. Um, fighter pilot. Oh, more military news. A fighter pilot blamed by Russia for downing the Malaysian Airlines plane found dead. A Ukrainian fighter pilot blamed by the Kremlin in the downing of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 has committed suicide, according to reports. Captain Vlajlav Vlashin. <laughs> 29. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Who had uh, claimed to be the victim of a smear campaign by Moscow or Moscow shot himself in his Mykolaiv home near the Black Sea. The BBC reported Dutch authorities. Yeah, I was thinking when I was reading this, wait a minute. I thought that it was downed by a missile. And according to this article, Dutch authorities concluded that a buck missile that had been moved from Russia into eastern Ukraine had destroyed the Boeing 777 jet, killing 298 people on July 17, 2014. The findings contradicted Moscow's claims that the plane en route from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur was brought down by the Ukrainian military. So it goes on to talk a little bit about this uh, young man that committed suicide. I don't know. You know, something's fishy here. First of all, um, it sounds to me like maybe Russia was trying to deflect blame by, you know, blaming this Ukrainian fighter pilot for downing the uh, the flight. Uh, obviously, the uh, the Dutch authorities don't believe that story. 
And I'm wondering if this was really truly a suicide or not. I mean, you know, things have been going on. Wasn't there something recently in the news, uh, Nick, in the UK? Yeah, about in the a, UK. A Russian. Well, yeah, we're um, yeah we're still waiting to uh, find out the the final results of all the investigations that are going on for, following the poisoning of uh, a. He he was a turned Russian uh, agent, uh, and his daughter were. Uh, poisoned with sarin, which is a, a nerve agent, uh, so it's banned under the um, Geneva. Well, not, I'm not quite sure which convention it is, but uh, anyway, it's uh, it's a, a toxic nerve agent that is banned for use. Um, and they, the UK authorities have identified it specifically as one that is uh, was made in Russia. So, uh, you know, if um, either the Russians used it or they gave it to someone else to use, both of which are uh, supposedly banned. Um, so, uh, interesting. Uh, they seem to be uh, just going around the world doing whatever they damn well want and then claiming it's all sorts of other rubbish um, uh, and trying to obscurate uh, or obfuscate, I should say, um, the real... Uh, reasons but we're just plowing ahead quietly with our investigations and i guess we'll get to the bottom of it eventually well the uh the police uh where he lived the this man who committed suicide said uh posted a statement on facebook in which they described his death as a suicide but it's being probed under the premeditated murder section of ukraine's penal code so uh, maybe they don't believe it was a <laughs> suicide either mm. i mean sad story all around you know you have the the whole MH17 thing in the first place and then for stuff to just continue you know going on with people being blamed and perhaps unfairly so and to the point where you know more lives are lost yeah. it's just sad and that makes a good point you know if you uh, subscribe to the Russian uh, podcast the uh, airline pilot Geisky uh, you might be able to find a little bit more information, at least from their point of view. You'll, you'll get a different perspective. <laughs> oh, Nev, you're you're a crazy man. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know if we're ever going to hear anything more about that, but that, that is a sad story. Uh, let's see. Speaking of sad stories, this happened not, uh, well, kind of in your neck of the woods, uh, Nick. Uh, looks like an engineer has died after a Red Arrows jet crashed at RAF Valley on Anglesey. Anglesey? How do you pronounce that? Anglesey. Anglesey. Yes, okay. it's an island in northwest Wales where there's an RAF uh, fast jet training uh, base. I spent four years there before I dug a tunnel and escaped. Um, <laughs> that good, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a little remote. And uh, golly, when I when I was there, they didn't even open the pubs on a Sunday. So uh, yeah, um, uh, that's criminal. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the the Red Arrows, which fly the uh, the Hawk T one T one A, I think, um, was over there. N now it's very early on; we don't really know what's happened, but uh, it looks like um, the pilot got airborne, decided to return. And at some point, very late on the approach, uh, they the pilot ejected. Now, very sadly, he had this engineer on board who was a RAF corporal um, sitting in the back seat. Now, that's the seat the instructor normally sits in. But when there's only one pilot, um, the pilot sits in the front seat. 
Now, the way the Hawk is set up, the instructor is normally the captain in the back seat, and he can command eject both pilots or both occupants out of the aircraft. Uh, but when you've got a passenger, as this corporal engineer would have been in the instructor seat, in the back seat, uh, then the pilot in the front, uh, had, well, he would have previously disabled the command eject because you don't want the uh, rear seat occupant accidentally ejecting both of the occupants. So you turn that off, and then you have to do an independent ejection if there is a problem. Now, the pilot seems to have got out successfully, albeit it appears it was quite a low level, but the backseater uh, didn't. The engineer died in the crash, which is incredibly sad, um, but uh, we're just waiting to find out what the reason was and uh, what had occurred to the aircraft and why he didn't uh, have time to uh, eject. Hmm. Sad story. Yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. the pilots, you know, we are we'll probably receive a, a heck of a lot more training on the use of an ejection seat and, uh, or maybe a little bit more um, aware of situations that are going bad and uh, can quickly make that decision and eject ourselves or start the ejection sequence. But apparently the, the corporal in the back um, didn't have that same sense and, and uh, just didn't get it accomplished in time. No, no. I mean, if you're, if it's very close to the ground, the seat is pretty capable, but you do have to be pretty smart on that check and seat handle. Um, yeah. And yeah, that may, may be the cause, but uh, we're guessing. Right. Yeah, it just recently happened, what, just yesterday, I think, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, our uh, thoughts and prayers go to the uh, uh, loss of uh, life there in the family and friends. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah, last show, uh, we were talking about uh, the woes of uh, pet travel on United Airlines uh, specifically, but not all uh, airlines are... Um, are uh, getting away with uh, smooth, uh, smooth rides as far as pets on on uh, on airplanes and, and snafus and such. In fact, I think Acme had a recent thing in the news. Uh, I think today or yesterday that uh, uh, one air uh, what one pet had gotten on the wrong flight or something. Uh, but uh, yeah, but those those pets they just don't read. I know the, the I, gate number. Mm -hmm. If I mean, only they, they just, looked at the signs, they wouldn't get on the wrong flight. What's the matter with them? I don't know. Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. They, they Apparently, do. they're not as smart as we thought. We poorly, they were. poorly trained animals. <laughs> well, so anyway, United um, suspends pet cargo flights. Uh, it's suspending the program that transports pets and cargo holds. It will stop accept, accepting new reservations for its Pet Safe program though it will honor any reservations made through March 20th, the airline said. The suspension comes as United reviews its pet transport policies, a process that should be completed by May 1st. We're going to do a top-to-bottom review of the PetSafe operation, said United spokesman Charlie Hobart. Our goal is to continue to ensure the safety and comfort of pets and all animals that fly with us. Passengers can still carry small pets with them in carry-on luggage. Just don't put them in the overhead bin. Starting in April, in-cabin pets will be issued bright-colored bag tags to help identify the animals. United has experienced some major pet traveling disasters recently. Last week, of course, we all know about that. We don't need to recap that. So uh, that was the, uh, the news that I thought that we would uh, bring to you and let you know that uh, United has said, you know, perhaps we should look at our program and see what's going on here so that we don't have any more incidents that make us look bad in the news. 
Yeah, it's probably best just to not carry any than pick up all that <laughs> bad blood list. Exactly. Um, <laughs> update on the, uh, uh, let's see, Antonov 148 crash uh, that uh, took off and shortly after takeoff from Moscow. Uh, crashed. Uh, this is the one where uh, we believe there was evidence that they did not turn on the uh, pedo heat uh, systems and they had some uh, you know, unreliable airspeed indications and uh, they ended up crashing. Uh, let's see, on March 20th, which uh, was just yesterday, uh, we're recording the show on the 21st, uh, the Russia's Ministry of Transport issued a directive to suspend all flights on any aircraft type operated by Saratov Airlines as a result of violations having been found. An assessment of risks and corrective actions to maintain an acceptable level of safety and to eliminate identified violations of air legislation is to be undertaken. Based on the results of the checks of the Antonov 148s of Saratov Airlines, the Ministry of Transport is going to undertake uh, an, uh, unscheduled inspections of the AN-148s operated by other airlines to ensure compliance with airworthiness requirements. Based on the results of those inspections, further decisions may be made. So, I guess... Uh, well, very se sensible considering uh, we were all in a bit of doubt about the suitability of that airline the way they were operating. Yes. And finally, um, remember the Shoreham air crash? There was an air show in uh, Shoreham in August of 2015. And the, uh, what was it, a Hunter, a Hawker Hunter jet crashed yep. onto the A-27 in Sussex. Uh, it turns out that the pilot of the vintage jet, which crashed onto the dual carriageway, uh, is to be, and that it killed 11 men, is to be charged with manslaughter. Andy Hill was performing aerobatics when the Hawker Hunter jet crashed. Families of those who died have waited nearly three years to learn what charges or whether charges would be brought. Mr. Hill, who was 54 on Thursday, is due to appear at Westminster Magistrates Court on the 19th of April. He is to face counts of manslaughter by gross negligence and endangering air, an aircraft, the Crown Prosecution Service said. So what do you think of this? I know, Jeff, I'm kind of leaning two ways here because, you know, we all love our air shows. We all like them to be exciting, etc. And it's not an easy thing to do to be an air show pilot. This guy was uh, very well respected and admired in the air show uh, uh, world. Uh, and uh, he had previously uh, more or less been uh, uh, fault free. Um, however, there is a, a feeling that he flew his, his maneuvers at the beginning of this. They were a little bit of an impromptu thing, and they weren't quite within the correct bounds of the requirements of the air show. But at the time, there weren't a lot of checks being done, and uh, a lot of aircraft were doing similar things. So that was kind of what was going on at the time. And uh, he obviously made a mistake. Now, he was pretty severely injured in the uh crash it was amazing he survived uh, i'm not quite sure how much he will be able to recall about what happened so he'll be sitting there and uh, I, I suspect a little bit of a passenger when it comes to this uh, court case um, but on the other hand if he did deliberately do something that was negligent then uh, i think the authorities probably have the right to look at that and um, you know press charges it's me it's very sad 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess the question really is, can you, can they go back and prove that what he was doing was definitely negligent? Was it done carelessly and recklessly? No. And, you know, with the knowledge that that could be harmful. And I guess that's what they have to figure out if they can decide. But uh, I'm, I'm with you, Nick. I think this, this is a hard one either way. It's a, uh, yep. you know. Yep. I've got kind of really two minds on mm-hmm. this. Yeah, in in one way, it seems like they may be wanting to make an example out of him and maybe to justify all the harsh restrictions on uh, air shows since that crash. Uh, I don't know. Yes, of course, there's there's an awful lot of families who uh, are kind of looking for someone to blame. Right. There's only one person, really. Yeah. Uh, That's the pilot of the aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, if if there's no one else that can corroborate what happened and he can't give that information you know accidents do happen as well it may not have been something that was grossly negligent or at least outside of those rules at that time and you know that's a lot of that for them to wait this long and then go ahead and do this i have to think that they at least have some idea that they need to investigate that further I was just going to say, you know, I, unless they have some some type of recording or recorder of the event, it's going to be really difficult uh, to prove gross negligence on on this gentleman. I mean, obviously, with him uh, surviving, and Nick pointed out uh, quite well, it's, there's the likelihood of him having a, a memory of what exactly happened is very unlikely. So, uh, you know, it is it is one of those situations where, unfortunately. The, uh, the the families are suffering are suffering a terrible loss, and they feel as though uh, the the point the, the finger needs to be pointed. But you know it's going to be one of those hard, really hard scenarios. So I'm kind of like with the rest of you guys. It's it's a heartbreak for the family, a heartbreak for this gentleman that survived, um, and there's there's no good outcome on this. I don't think. No, no, and hopefully we'll be um, kept abreast of. The, what happens as far as the charges and if it goes to trial and, you know, hearing some more evidence regarding the uh, the charge of gross negligence and endangering an aircraft. I would say endangering the public, not the aircraft, but I guess the aircraft yeah. didn't survive either. So, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that might just be a quirk of the way the law is written. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, that is it for our news folder on this show. Not quite so news heavy as the last one. So let's move on to the best part of the show, which, of course, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. All right. We'll start with Steve. He has some questions for Dana. Hi, APG crew. This is mainly for Dana. Dana, congratulations on your upcoming promotion to captain. Could you explain what your upcoming captain conversion course will be like? What's the course content and structure? Assuming you will stay on the same equipment, what is it that you actually need to learn and what will you be tested on? How many sim sessions? And again, what do you expect from the sim sessions? Anything in particular you're most nervous about? And how many trips with a check airman before you get let loose? For Nick and Jeff, what would you what would be your advice to Dana in both getting through the course and then operationally moving to the left hand seat? Good luck, Dana. Again, that was from Steve Hurst. So Dana, take it away. 
Hey, well, thank you very much for that excellent question, Steve. And um, well, it's it's for me, it's a very short course from right seat to left seat because I am currently qualified and typed on the aircraft, actually. Uh, type rating to fly the DC-9, which covers the MD-88, MD-90, and I believe, no, maybe not 7-1. I can't remember what 7-1's under that one. But anyways, um the uh, the structure of the course is for the short course for me is seven, believe it or not, just seven sims. And they basically take uh, particular parts of the uh, long course, which is the full-blown uh, course, out of the syllabus. And they use individual uh, parts of the uh, um, of long course to get you trained on the, on the left seat. Uh, I am. Uh, I am not. I'll be quite honest. I am not the best person in the sim. I get. I have check itis in a big way. I get very nervous, and I'm very. As most pilots are on themselves, I am hypercritical on my performance as uh, as a pilot. So I find it uh, particularly stressful. Uh, to go through training, and it's probably the reason why I'm still on the 88 in the right seat because I've been trying to avoid training. Uh, I knew that this was probably going to be my last chance to go to the left seat on the 88 as the aircraft uh, looks forward to retiring. Um, I'm sure some people are looking forward to it retiring, uh, but I in particular love the airplane, so I didn't want to miss the opportunity to fly it from the left seat. Uh, you know, I am nervous. Uh, training for me is, is, is a big deal, but also nervous to become a captain. Um, I've been a first officer almost my entire career. I have very little experience being in the left seat and making those decisions. So I am going to be nervous about making everyday decisions. Um, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, because it's always going to keep me questioning to make sure that I'm making the decisions that are the uh, most prudent ones by using the guidance established by the standard operational procedures of the company, uh, the FAA, and, uh, of course, the most important one, safety. So, uh, you know, I am nervous about that, but I, you know, I've had some great uh, captains that I've flown with, the present company included, I'm flying with another one on this trip who's given me some guidance, and I've actually moved over to the left seat doing pre-flight duties, trying to get myself used to sitting over there uh, to make my transition a whole lot easier. Oh, you know, that's easy, Dana. All you do is just sit there and uh, read the newspaper or, you know. Use <laughs> the first your, officer does all the work yeah. for you at that point, right? That's, I mean. that's, I'm, I'm interested to see how it is because, you know what, I, I I actually enjoy not doing nothing. So. <laughs> I I I I do don't do not mind going to do the walk around, come back in, doing the pre flight and program the FMS. It's perfectly fine by me. It keeps me busy. So, but I'm I'm really you know and I really appreciate the question, Steve. It's 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 going to be a challenge, and you know I I've, I've kind of been thinking up until just this past starting of this past trip actually, and I said to Julie, my wife, I said to her, honey. This is my sixth to last trip on this airplane as a first officer. And it hit me. And I said, wow, I'm going to be upgrading captain. I only have five trips after this trip. So it's, it's kind of sinking home. Um, and as I said to another friend, it's, uh, it's a lifelong dream. I've always wanted to 
being in this position. I've always wanted to wear the uh, the uniform and put the fourth stripe on. So now it says, if you're not watching the video today, which most of you aren't, um, I, Captain Jeff is still in his uniform wearing his fourth stripe. And uh, so I'm looking forward to, as I'm sitting here looking at him, uh, buying those stripes and uh, looking uh, looking like the captain. So it, it's uh, it, it's it's an adventure and it's a new chapter in my life, and I'm really looking forward to it. So in, on that note, I'm going to hand it over to Nick and Jeff because I'm certainly wanting to get everybody's uh, uh, input as to what would make me a better captain. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, well, don't forget to strap in facing forwards, and yours is the seat. <laughs> Yours is the seat on the left. That's the important bit. Um, you you set. You're going to set the tone for your flight. You're going to do it professionally. You're going to do it in a easygoing manner, which is just like you. You're going to make it a comfortable environment for people. Uh, you're going to um, allow your first officers to uh, do their thing and help you, and not try and be a one man band. You're going to be just perfect, and you've got a, a wealth of experience. Uh, you just need the confidence to know that you can do the job and uh, and just quietly get on with it. That's that's about the only advice I'm going to offer. Wait a minute. Don't you know? Don't you, obviously, you don't know Dana. No. <laughs> Clearly, bad jokes, bad here. I mean, no here. <laughs> so, of course, I'm kidding. Uh, I've flown with Dana many, many times, and he is a, a very accomplished and uh, competent pilot. And so here's the deal, Dana. So here. You're going. I know it's it, it. You're apprehensive about this whole thing, and of course, I agree with you. I hate being in the simulator as well. Um, so you know, I, I think, and you're you're right. Most of us, if not all of us, are kind of are too hard on ourselves, and we tend to dwell on little mistakes that we make here and there, and sometimes that can be to our detriment in the uh, simulator. But you just got to let those things, you know, uh, slide off the back or whatever the phrase is. But roll off your back. What is it, Steph? Um, water off a duck's back. Yeah, roll, water. Off, yeah, whatever. Of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm glad I'm not the only there's one that a, doesn't. There's, a, there's a phrase. There is a phrase. It's uh, a really common one that I none of us can. Yeah. Remember. But anyway, um, so and and here's the uh, here's the little secret. Uh, after and I guarantee and, and and I want you to admit this to everyone once you've gone through the course and you've gone through through your uh, OEs and you're a full fledged captain for maybe a few weeks or a couple of months and you're going to say, you know what? I can't believe I didn't do this earlier because it's no big deal because you already know how to fly the airplane. It's just a matter of going from, you know, the, this hand is on the throttles and this hand is on the yoke to, you know, the other hand. And, and it really, you'd think that that would be a hard thing to, to make the transition, but it's not, it's just almost immediate. You'll get used to it. Uh, you'll be doing a, a few Sims and before you get in the airplane, it'll be all, you know, secondhand, uh, just, you know, nature. Um, and as far as decision-making is concerned, you know, you're a level-headed, uh, person, a rational person and uh, yeah, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not telling any secrets here. Um, even, even though, you know, you like to, uh, you know, do a lot of self-deprecation, uh, that's, it's not the case. He's a very sharp guy. He's going to make great decisions. You have all the resources of our company to, you know, look at our operations policies and, you know, if, in case you're, but you know, I, my biggest piece of advice to you would be don't get so wrapped up on every little thing going into the 
operations manual to see what the policy is and you you know use your head you have been around for a while you understand how things work and uh and i'm gonna i guarantee you're gonna say oh man jeff this is like not a big deal i wish i'd done this earlier and this is a lot of fun and you always get to fly with your most favorite captain yourself that's very yeah. That's very true. And you did mention a couple things that, that prompted me. Number one, he did ask, uh, what's my uh, operation experience uh, going to be required? Uh, it's going to be two three-day trips, or I think it's 30 hours uh, right around there. And the other thing is, you mentioned it, Jeff, and I was just talking about this with the other captain about what I'm nervous about. I am also very nervous about flying with all the new hires and making the right decisions and guiding them as a new captain. So that's something I'm, I'm also considering uh, because it's not all about my skill. Uh, you know, I know how to fly the airplane. I've been on a long time, just like you have. Um, it's just making the right decision at the right time to take, take the airplane and not hurt the guy's feelings or, you know, when do I interact and, and say, Hey, you know, this will, this would, I think would help you out to make you a better pilot. I mean, I've been an instructor for a very long time. I've been a flight instructor. I've been a SIM instructor, a ground school instructor, but I guess you could say it better. I'm a scuba diver instructor. So I understand how to teach and, uh, I just want to make sure that I'm being productive for my new first officers and trying to, you know, to mold our, our new, uh, cadre of pilots into the best pilots we can have in you know in the system. So, but well, just I, make sure you uh, take your baseball bat with you, uh, Dana. <laughs> just knock them out. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the same brief when I give the captains. You do anything that's going to kill me, I'll knock you out. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, you I know. wouldn't take that out of your briefing. Well, maybe. <laughs> it might sound a little different coming. That might that might, say, that might set the wrong tone. Just make sure they understand <laughs> you're joking. Steve didn't ask me to give you any advice, but I've got a little bit anyway, if you wanted. I was just going to say, all that experience you just talked about, trust it, because that's you already have everything you need. So you're going to do great. Yep. And, you know, you're, you have the advantage, as I did when I upgraded. I went from having experience as a first officer for many years in the 727, and then moving to the left seat was just a matter. I already knew the airplane. I knew how it flew. It's just a matter of, you know, getting used to which hand does what and making good decisions. And finally, I, I guess I can say that uh, this whole thing is going to be nothing but a big old fat nothing burger. Okay, well, I I appreciate it. It's easy for me to say, uh, I know it's, but just think Dan, this is one of the things that got me through or got me, uh, over my apprehension. I thought about some of the knuckleheads I'd flown with in the past that were captains. And I'm thinking if they can make it an upgrade to captain, then sure as heck I can. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, what? think you about it that way. You're absolutely right. Think about some of the guys you've flown. flown with Dana. Come on. Really? You're going to go, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a comforting thought for the flying public out there. Thank you no, for when, that. When Jeff. we say, you know, knucklehead, I don't mean it in a really strict way. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, but, but, but they're Jeff. not your favorite captain. That's all you're saying. Right? <laughs> the, you know, the ones that I consider knuckleheads wasn't that they didn't know how to fly an airplane. It was that they didn't know how to make decisions. And so they would just the, the, let and him and ha and not do anything and be indecisive. And you as the first officer are going, Jim, come on, let's make the decision. This is what we need to do. What's what's wrong with you? You know, why are you sitting in the left seat? And you know, you're you got to make the decision. Don't be afraid to make decisions. Well, you, 
the, the, the good part about this stuff is that it's almost not saying it's impossible because it's never impossible, but the likelihood of there being two knuckleheads in one location on the same airplane is far less likely. The, the real reason there's two pilots. And that's, that's <laughs> exactly. the problem with uh, the trip that we're going to be flying uh, in later Uh-oh. in April. There'll be two knuckleheads in that cockpit. <laughs> no, it's going to be the captain wannabe trying not to be the captain. Oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to you as Captain Dana the whole time, and you're gonna make all the decisions. So should I wear my fourth stripe? Yeah, go ahead. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, great, Steve. Great questions for uh, Dana. Anything else uh, anybody want to add you. before we move on to the next piece of feedback? Hmm? No. no, I'm out of advice. Okay, all goodbye. right uh let's see christian sent this in uh and you know this is something that we have covered in the past but it's been quite quite some time in fact i'm not even sure if we were doing the panel kind of thing if i i may have been the old uh the old school uh solo show but i do remember covering this uh do you remember this at all guys or uh was this something that yeah, was before? if it's the I same was, one that yeah. I, I recall, yep. Yeah, this guy lives in a 727, a Boeing 727, six months of the year, just outside of Portland, Oregon. And uh, uh, let's see, he apparently he offers tours. And I'm thinking, wow, that would be fun to go up there and do a an APG meetup at this guy's 727 in the woods in Portland, Oregon, because I love Portland, uh, first of all, mm-hmm. and I love 727s, second of all, and I love APG meetups, third of all. So it looks like it has all the all the makings of a great uh, meetup maybe sometime in the future. Um, anyway, so he sent a link to this uh, YouTube video. Um, actually, it's a website, atlasobscura.com, places airplane home in the woods. And uh, I think there is a YouTube video of this uh, somewhere floating around. Um, anyway, this is from Christian Bass. And he has some pictures here that uh, we'll have a link to his feedback in the show notes. And you can see some of these photos taken of this guy's 727 home at least half the year in uh, the woods. And uh, he said also, and just for Captain Nick, here's a Swedish hotel in a 747 at Stockholm's Arlanda Airport. And he put a link for us there to look at. Maybe a romantic night in the cockpit. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Know what I mean? Might change his opinion. <laughs> well, there's not room to swing a cat in that damn cockpit. It is a, you know, you'd think that a 747 cockpit would be huge, but you're right, Nick. It's yep. No, it's, the only thing big in a 747 cockpit are all the egos. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! And uh, well, I'm not going to go into that. Um, well, you know, show. they say um, of a man who flies a big airplane, right? No. Family show, folks. Family show. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen family show okay so uh thanks christian for uh reminding us of this guy i guess uh, he the other six months of the year he is in japan working on another acquisition a 747 uh, that he lives in over there so interesting interesting guy mm-hmm. very interesting uh, i have to say i'm looking at pictures of the interior it all looks a bit heath robinson to me you know it's kind of not exactly um, you know, very uh, luxury. Well, yeah, well put together or something. There's bits of wire hanging everywhere, and everything's sort of just stacked up. It's like he's just got a big aluminium tube to live in, which is basically what he's got. But he hasn't made much of an effort, I don't think, to make it look particularly 
stylish. I have a feeling that he's single. Yes. I what mean, gives you that? Impression? Don't I just have this feeling? I don't know. Be- okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know dirty. what I mean. <laughs> well, apparently, the big claim to fame for this aircraft is that it flew a dead body to uh, <laughs> to Greece. I mean, it uh, it flew uh, Aristotle Anassis' oh. body home to Greece for really? burial. And the, so uh, it had Jackie Anassis and the family yeah. on board. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. He had it fumigated, though, before uh, he took possession. Okay, uh, let's see. Chuck writes, preparing for a glider rating. He said, hello, airline pilot guy crew. I've been listening for about six months now. I enjoy everything about your podcast. What? Everything, Chuck? Come on. I'm currently working on a private pilot license glider rating, a PPL glider rating. I have several solo flights now and have passed my written. Now, the check ride. Do any of you have any suggestions on what I should focus on to prepare for it? If I remember correctly, I think Nick flew gliders. Thanks again for the great podcast. Keep up the great work. And this is Chuck from Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. Nick. Yeah, I, I did. I did. And the one thing, one piece of advice I had, wouldn't concentrate too much on the missed approach procedure if I were you. <laughs> 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 that's easy. <laughs> and that's one of those cases you probably can't always go around. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Committed exactly. to the landing at that point. Yeah. Uh, the last time I flew a gl- glider was probably 1973. So I think you, there's lots of people out there with some better advice than mine. I would imagine it's like the same advice that anybody would have for any kind of check ride, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like any other check ride, I believe there is a practical test standards from the FAA for this. So that's a good place to start because it'll give you everything um, that they're going to basically test you to on the check ride. So if you can go through that and be confident with all of that information and all of those procedures, maneuvers, um, you know, that's a great starting point if you're not sure where to start. But I'm sure your instructor has a lot of good information for you as well. So Dana, you're a flight instructor any advice as regards uh, well you know i kind of like what you guys are giving me it, it it's you know the most important thing is uh, on any check ride you know it, it it's in itself very stressful so if you can go in and, and, and be relaxed um and realize that that person's really not there necessarily to um be hard on you they're, they're just to evaluate you I, I and the big thing of that is are you safe that's what they're really looking for they're not really looking for okay can he hold his altitude within three feet i mean can can he pin you know do a pinpoint churn can he you know find the next uh next uh um heat uh what's it called the uh, oh my god i'm having, uh uh, updraft, um, you know, you know these 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 are the things that it, that's what the evaluator is looking for. So if you can go into the check ride and feel as though, um, you know, you feel confident but not overconfident that you're open to suggestions and and just be be humble and be ready for for any questions that have anything to do with your aircraft um, limitations, weight weight restrictions. Um, familiarity with the airport you're at, uh, regulations. As long as you you know, have that information down, it's going to help you to prepare better. So I think just relax, have fun with it. Um, 
it's hard to say that because, you know, as I just got through saying, I have the worst check itis, but I also had the worst test itis. So when I was in college or high school and elementary and so forth, I'd always get very nervous. So if you can relax, that's my biggest, biggest uh, point of uh, advice because they're just looking to make sure you're safe. And, and actually, you can find those uh, practical test standards online. Just do a Google search for it. The FAA makes that available. So there's an examiner's checklist in there in terms of what they're actually looking for. But Dana gave great advice. So there you go. Interesting yeah. stuff. I don't know anything about gliders. I'm reading through this a little bit. It has a section about launches and landings, aero toe. toe. There's a subsection called boxing the wake. I don't know what that means at all. Boxing the wake. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting stuff. Uh, I think that probably refers to uh, dodging the turbulence behind the tow aircraft. Sure. Yep. So being able to fly the airplane in a box around the wake. But yeah. I am guessing. Uh, actually, Marcus might pipe up. You never know if Marcus hears this. He might be able to provide some information. But, of course, the tests in Germany are probably going to be different to the to, uh, America. Yeah. Uh, in addition to... Uh, knowing your go-around procedures very well. Also, uh, practice the engine-out procedures. That would be my yes. advice. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> should be second uh, engine fires, things like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Chuck, hopefully that, that didn't hurt too much. <laughs> and it may have helped, hopefully. Thanks for uh, sending in your question. Uh, and please let us know how it went. Um, Miles writes, now this is an interesting one. How practical would it be for commercial air transport not carrying passengers to refuel in the air as they do in the military this would seem to be a way to keep a plane in the air long enough to be worth the costs i'm sure boeing would love to sell civilian versions of military planes that can be refueled in the air former military pilots with uh, in the air refueling would be worth paying more for the experience so <laughs> I read this a few times and I put a little note here, huh? Civilian planes with no packs. It doesn't seem to be a very good business plan. I had the same thought. Was he referring to cargo? Like, but not military. Oh, cargo. I see what you mean. Okay. That's I what, wasn't sure though. What threw me sure. off was like commercial air transport that are supposed to carry passengers, but don't carry passengers that were refueled. And so, okay, I, I thank you, Steph. That makes a lot more sense now from that perspective. So in I'm other words, guess, yeah, though. freight, freight, uh, operations doing, um, air to air refueling. Um, I, you know, I have a feeling, I suspect that the complication of air refueling, the equipment, the training required to keep everybody up to speed with being proficient at it would just be so overwhelmingly expensive that it wouldn't make any economic sense whatsoever. And I don't know how necessary, I think, um, if we're definitely talking about cargo operations, they have, you know, um, their operations set up so that they're going to be making stops along the way for loading, unloading cargo and also refueling. Yep. So I don't know how, what demand there is for flying for such a long distance that you would need air to air refueling for not. I'm purposes. weighing up the cost of having a, a specialist tanker for you to, to fuel refuel off against dropping into a convenient airport for an hour to gas up and go on to where it is you need the extra fuel to go to. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, nah, doesn't really work. I mean, the the cost of a landing fee against the cost of taking a, a tanker off, paying his takeoff and landing fee to come up and find you. So you're not actually saving anything there. You've got to affect a, a join 
You've always got the uh, the risk factor of flying two vast airplanes next door to each other, which would be uh, well um, beyond that that would be acceptable for a civil operator, I suspect. So uh, much as I think it would be a fun thing for us to do, I don't think it's a, a practical or safe option. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for the question and made us think a little bit about that, Miles. And uh, hopefully that satisfied you. Um, ben <laughs> writes, Ben Ippolito on Facebook, he wrote in and saying, regarding the parking, the jetway, aerobridge, finger, it depends on the model of bridge. The ones I drove with wheels, as opposed to the ones that directly extend only without lateral movement, you just push the joystick in the direction you want it to go. The logic in the system works out the steering angle stuff for you. You're trained where to aim for as far as alignment of the door. The bridges at the airport I worked at had marks for the various types and were and where to align the door inside the bridge. That supposedly made the outside of the bridge miss all the important bits on the aircraft. Although I was aware of certain types where it was very close so that uh, with them, you tended to favor going too far to the safe side. In particular, for the operation I worked for, the difference between the probe locations with the original 737s versus the new generation's uh, probes, uh, the latter which had probes located much farther forward than the 200 model. So, um, anyway, I'd much rather not be able to open the door fully than hear very expensive noises when 40,000 kilograms of aerobridge hits the pedo angle of attack sensors on the side of the aircraft. Yeah. Um, I guess my point, you know, regarding the driving the jetways and the, and looking at the, the wheels and the pointer to show which way the wheels are going, because I've seen it so many times where I've been out there and the person, you know, is really getting frustrated and they're pushing and pulling and pulling and pushing and going side to side with the little stick. And, uh, I'm looking out the window and I'm watching the wheels and they're just kind of going around and around. They're just kind of like, doing a pirouette and just going around in circles and I'm thinking, well, that jet was never going to get to the airplane. If we They're don't figure out which way to stop and see which way the wheels are pointed and then, you know, make that adjustment and then go from there. And then you don't have to, I don't mean to stare at the whole thing the whole time. I mean, just to kind of get an idea of where, where your wheels are pointed. And then uh, I think you're going to have a better go at it, yeah, but that's just me. I don't have any experience driving jetways and I'm, I'm sure I never will. <laughs> so Sounds like it's, they're just, it's not, uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say, it, it really is not, I, I, I've spent years driving jetways, and it's it's really not a complex operation. But I do have to make a comment. If you, you know, like most people driving cars, most people are okay with and understand how to drive a car. But if you don't have that, that chip in your brain that you can actually drive well, and you may not be able to understand the concept of working these wheels back and forth and driving the jetway up to the uh, to the aircraft. So, you know, some people just have natural aptitude towards things, and some people just don't. Yeah. And it's it, it's not a very complex thing. Um, there are different types of jetways out there, and there's j- different types of, you know, technology on jetways now, and, and it's the oldest style. Um, a little bit more difficult to figure out where the wheels are. You'd, you'd sit there and spin them, and the indicator in the, in the jetway is can't can, and sometimes doesn't even work at all. So it's not until you actually move the jetway they can figure out which which direction it's going to go. So, anyways, um, 
yeah, uh, just that's my my piece on jetways. Okay, and I think that you're the only one here on the crew that has any experience with it. So I, I walk down them a lot. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And I have a funny feeling Jeff and I a little more than Nick. Yes. (laughs) Because we do it, we we do it seven, 10, you know, 12 times in one trip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you keep forgetting things? No, because we swap aircraft every time we go through anywhere. So we're always going on and off the airplanes because uh, we're changing them all the time. Ah, okay. They keep breaking. I, I see. <laughs> well, that's no. true too. <laughs> no. Well, we won't take them if they're not safe. That's true. Hey, Steph, you want to do this one? Yeah. Are we ready to move on? Yeah. So this one is from PJ about a breastfeeding mom. And I think this came in a while ago. Uh, not sure. Anyway, PJ says, Hey guys and Steph, just catching up on some podcasts running a couple months behind. Just listened to 306 and the story about the mom who was kicked off for refusing to stop breastfeeding. Wanted to offer a quick thought. While a child under two does not need to have their own seat, a parent certainly can purchase a seat for them. We did that once for a trip to Hawaii when our daughter was one. What we learned is that if a child has a reserved seat, they must be secured in that seat for taxi, takeoff, and landing, regardless of age. Ironic that if you don't purchase the seat, they're fine if you hold the child, but if you purchase the seat, you cannot elect whether to use it. Not saying that this is the case here, but a possibility. That said, it sounds like we don't have the full story here. So in other news, I was also on a, on a cruise the week of January 14th, so I'm looking forward to listening, uh, to listening to 307 or 308 to hear about her trip and Dana's as well. Who knows, we might have been in the same port. Going back all the way to January when Dana and I were on cruises as well. Blue skies and tailwinds at cruise from PJ. So, um, yeah, that's true. And actually, the last flight I took, there was, um, I think, one child on the entire aircraft who happened to be sitting behind me with their parental unit. And they that child was under the age of two. They did not have a seat purchased separately, but the seat next to the parent was open. And uh, same thing, they, they were allowed to use that seat, but if the child was in the seat, they had to be buckled in. But if they were sitting in the um, same seat with the parent, all they had to do was hold them. So that is true. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, PJ. Um, good to hear from you. And who knows, you guys may have been on the same cruise ship or at least the same port. Could have been. Uh, you know, we were talking about that... Um, crop duster um video i believe it was uh ray williams sent it in if i'm remember the remembering that uh correctly uh the um well anyway i'll read what luke has to say regarding the episode airing your dirty laundry the crop dusting plane you were attempting to identify and the first bit of feedback was in fact not a pilatus but a pacific aerospace corporation's pac cresco a plane that is manufactured here in New Zealand. Bonus fact, crop dusting, known as aerial top dressing in New Zealand, was actually invented in New Zealand. Thank you for all that you do and the team. Uh, thank you for all that you and the team do. Love your work. Luke, and he puts in parentheses, arrow kiwi. And he said, P.S. I think that the flying kiwi stole my name. <laughs> Uh-oh. There's fighting words there. Mm-hmm. No, those effing kiwis. <laughs> 
Yeah, the flying kiwis, you mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's what not. he means by F. Yeah, exactly. Flying. I was just clarifying. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so he has a... Uh, actually, I I looked up the uh, Cresco and uh, found these images on uh, Google search. And sure enough, that is the airplane that we were looking at in the video. So you are correct, Luke. Oh, and his name is Luke, too. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um Anyway, oh no, Lucas is the uh, flying kiwi. So Luke, Luke it's a very similar. Mm-hmm. You oh. kiwis need to come up with more uh, with names that sound less similar, please. Yes, yes. We're going to start confusing all of you. <laughs> same with same with you folks in Sweden. Too many. How many are there? Like multiple Andreases or something? Yeah, we have no. like I think we're on number four or five on the Andreases exactly. in Sweden. So, Sweden and and uh, New Zealand. Yeah. Everyone needs different names. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least there are pending na- uh, numbers to them. It helps us a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Um, let's see. Dana, would you like to take this one? Number nine? I would love to take number nine. Here we go. F- from Ben. Hello, Jeff, Dana, Nick, and Steph. I have recently been doing some and I believe it is a beautiful aircraft, 787 routes for Acme Virtual, and I have formulated a question for you. If, say, Ryanair or Acme Harp, as he puts, what is a 737-8 in Acme National, AAL, what is a 319, Airbus 319, I was wondering how they would get the aircraft crossed the pond. Fly through Greenland and Canada would be in, inefficient. So, how do they transport the aircraft with the Belugas and Dreamlifters? Or do the Airbus and Boeing have factories in other countries? Uh, example Boeing in the UK. I also have linked my YouTube channel about flying in beautiful New Zealand YouTube. And that I think you'll probably have that available in the show notes, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? I will. Uh, thanks Another for Kiwi. the answers. What? Another Kiwi. Another Kiwi. Thanks for the answer. Cheers, B. Marling. Well, um, they ferry the aircraft. Uh, if the aircraft doesn't have the range to do the uh, the whole flight at once, they indeed will stop it off uh, either in Gander, uh, Iceland, or even up in Ireland if they need to, um, to go ahead and get the aircraft uh, across. Also, uh, believe it or not, I had uh, some friends that were in this business, and they were ferrying small aircraft, i.e. what Steph uh, flies, or Cessna's one, 172s, or Piper Warriors, uh, between uh, the uh, continents. And it's the same exact thing. They would stop off and pick up fuel along their planned routes of flights. Uh, the other thing that can be done as well is a uh, ox fuel tanks can be added, um, especially uh, with the smaller aircraft. They tend to do that. They'll put an extra couple ox tanks in the airplane cargo compartment in, or, or in the back seat to allow the aircraft to go ahead and fly so it's not uncommon for that to happen and they generally don't have although um, now uh, Boeing has a couple of different manufacturing uh, facilities one of them happens to be where I was last night in Charleston uh, that's where they make the 787 or the final assembly in 787 um, and I know for a fact uh, the Airbus uh, folks are building a uh, final production facility down there in the Mobile, Alabama area. So it's not uncommon to have 
uh, aircraft built in other other countries, and then uh, it or and or flown across the pond per se or uh, to other continents. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, just delivering an aircraft is no big deal. We used to uh, fly from the UK to, uh, well, we still do, I think, to Manila to have our aircraft serviced. So that's just an empty sector, and you just, you know, cough up the gas, fly it half around the world because the servicing there is less expensive than it would be to have it done locally. So just flying an airplane, uh, you know, uh, over the pond, uh, or even using the Blue Spruce route, which is the, the northern route where you've got plenty of airfields to stop off at. Um, well, not plenty, but sufficient. Um, you know, it's it's no big uh, deal to uh, move aircraft around empty uh, rather than sticking them inside <laughs> some enormous, uh, <laughs> you know, beluga or dreamlifter to do it for you. And somebody that we all know, uh, or most of us do, Pilot Pip, has a great podcast, Plane Safety Podcast. He was delivering um, a Hawker uh, 800, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, from yeah. the UK to Columbus, Ohio, here in the States. And mm-hmm. he took... Kansas City, I think. Or even, can, that's right, Wichita. Wichita. Or Wichita, yeah, some, somewhere you're in right, Kansas. You're right, right. And, and yeah, so he, right. I remember he, he talked about, you know, how he was able to, you know, basically jump from one place to another place to another place because it didn't have the range to go all the way across the pond. And I think he stopped in Iceland and then Greenland and then somewhere in um, northern Canada. The uh, What province was that? The uh, uh, Somewhere like Goose or Gander? Yeah, Goose or Gander, one of those up there, I think uh, he landed in. And, uh, and then finally from there, I think he was able to go all the way to uh, Wichita, Kansas. So, yeah. That's I think that the preponderance of aircraft deliveries and ferry flights are 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 performed that way. Yeah, if we have a uh, a fault with our long range navigation equipment, that's the route we have to take. So any aircraft that's not capable of going etops or not capable of going uh, across the middle of the Atlantic takes that northerly route because there are airfields around to divert into if if required. Uh, not many places in Greenland that I would like to go to. Sonderstrom Field is one of the few that are big enough, and that's a runway stuck down a, literally down a field. And I think you can more or less only go in there one way, and if you've got to try and land on the other end with a big airplane, it's not advisable. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, I was reading um, on Wikipedia or something of the uh, of that uh, airfield and the history of it, and uh, very interesting. Um, mm but you're yeah, right. Yeah, they were used during the war a lot. In fact, a lot of them were built at that point to get uh, um, aircraft across uh, from America to the UK during the war. Yeah. Well, you know, I have no idea how long we've been going so far, but I think it just feels about the right time for us to do this week's installment of the Plain Tale. And thank you very much for the pronunciation guide, Captain Nick. Did you do that after the fact? Or no, was no, that no, there the whole there time? The time? Oh, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> Jushko is the way that you pronounce this. 303 Squadron Koshjushko. <laughs> it just doesn't sound right at all. The old pilot's plane tales. 303 Squadron Koshjushko. The third rising of Germany, which brought Hitler to power, 
had resulted in a land grab under the auspices of reuniting the traditional German territories and peoples. The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, returned from the Munich Conference and, clambering out of a Lockheed 14, he waved a worthless piece of paper in the air and declared, I have returned from Germany with peace for our time. Churchill's opinion was typically blunt. In a letter he wrote, England has been offered a choice between war and shame. She has chosen shame and will get war. On the 31st of March 1939, the United Kingdom, with France, pledged itself to the support of Poland. However, they were far from being ready for war, and when at 0440 on the 1st of September Germany invaded Poland, there was little they could actually do. However, despite this, on the 3rd of September 1939, the Prime Minister spoke to the country, telling the somber listeners that he had asked Germany to promise to withdraw from Poland. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Outnumbered and outgunned, the Polish Air Force dispersed to secondary airfields and fought bravely. Despite flying the obsolete PZL-11 fighter, they accounted for over 170 German aircraft. However, the ground war wasn't going well, and with the country about to fall, a great number of their pilots managed to escape to France, one of whom was Mirek Wojciechowski. Born in Turin, his father served with the Polish cavalry in one of the last great cavalry battles at Zamusht, where the Soviet army, led by Stalin, was driven back. Learning to fly from an open cockpit, their parachute training was something of a trial. Strapping themselves into chutes for the first time, they clambered out onto the wing of the giant Friedrichshafen G3 biplane and simply slid off into the void below. He trained with the famous fighter school at Deblin, and although their equipment wasn't the most modern, their ideas and tactics were right up to date. When on the 1st of September 1939 Poland's border defences were overrun, he made a quick visit to his mother and younger sister, Marysia, to say his goodbyes. They were hurried, and he never saw them again. Two weeks later, Poland was on her knees, and although their resistance would cost Germany more in dead and wounded than the combined armies of Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg, France and England the following year, Mirek was ordered to take his aircraft to Romania. With the help of the Polish ambassador, he was given a false passport and visas to begin a long journey to somewhere where he could continue the fight. He crossed the border into former Yugoslavia, then into Greece, and finally, pretending to be a travelling salesman, into France. 
Many of his compatriots were assigned to French squadrons, but Mirek opted to go to England, where he joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve. Mirek was 22 when he completed his dangerous and complicated journey to arrive in Blackpool and begin his RAF training. He had already fought a war, crossed four countries and the Channel, so that he could have a chance to get back at the Nazis. But the RAF wasn't going to make it easy for him. It must be said that the British command regarded their Slavic allies as inferior pilots to their own, with broken morale and hindered by language difficulties. Except for the language, they were completely wrong. Along with his Polish friends and colleagues, Mirek got to grips with his training, as they all would have done. A lot of things were different. They worked in miles and not kilometres, Gallons instead of litres, and the throttles of British aircraft worked in the opposite sense to Polish ones. There were constant speed propellers to deal with, and for some, retracting undercarriage proved an easy area for error. Tactics were different. They had never heard of radar or interceptions controlled from the ground. However, they were keen and able. Training aircraft were the likes of the Hawker Hector, the Fairy Battle, and the Hurricane Mark I. But eventually, the RAF established Number 303 Squadron for the Polish Air Force pilots. It was one of 16 Polish squadrons to be formed and was named after the Polish hero general Tadeusz Kościuszko. What the British did not yet realise was that many of the Poles were excellent pilots. Having come through the Polish and French campaigns, some had more combat experience than most of their British comrades, and they employed superior tactics. The squadron trained and trained, but wasn't given operational status, despite the Battle of Britain being two months old, and then... On one fateful day, when Mirak was following his section leader, Ludwig Paskovich, on yet another training mission flying Hawker Hurricanes, everything changed. Ludwig spotted a German aircraft. I turned over and dived after him. When turning over, I noticed the black crosses on the wings. Then I aimed at the fuselage and opened fire at about 200 yards later transferring to the port engine, which I set on fire. When I drew very close, I pressed down under for a new attack, and then I saw another hurricane attacking and a German bailing out by parachute. On his return to Northolt, flying off Sapaskovich was reprimanded for breaking discipline. But then the smiles broke out, and they celebrated his and the squadron's first victory. The next day, the squadron was declared fully operational and posted to Number 11 Group. This episode was immortalised in the famous Repeat Please, Repeat Please scene in the classic 1969 film The Battle of Britain. This was a turning point for the Polish fighter pilots. At last they had the equipment and the freedom to strike back at the enemy. For the next six weeks, 303 Squadron was in the thick of it, but they weren't alone. One of the finest examples of their work was a remarkable feat accomplished by Sergeant Antoni Glavaki of No. 501 Squadron, 
who on the 24th of August claimed five enemy aircraft which were shot down in three combat sorties over a single day. He was one of only three pilots who achieved the ace-in-a-day status during the Battle of Britain, and he recalled the day's actions in his memoirs. Suddenly a Defiant with a Messerschmitt 109 on its tail flashed across my path between me and the Junkers. I am now firing at the Messerschmitt, and see my burst sink into its fuselage and wings. He is hit, and goes down closely behind the Defiant which trails black smoke. Both aircraft crash into the sea below. In the following weeks, number 303 Squadron achieved a truly astonishing score of 126 enemy planes, as well as 13 probables and 9 damaged, claiming the title of the best scoring unit in the Battle of Britain. One of their extraordinary feats was to shoot down 14 planes plus 4 probables in one sortie over London on the 7th of September, the first day of the Blitz, without a single loss on their side. The scores of 303 Squadron were so impressive that RAF Fighter Command sent up British observers, including North Holt Station Commander Stanley Vincent, who wondered if the Poles might be guilty of inflating the numbers in their post-action reports. The observers, along with the British squadron commanders, found that the scores were not being overreported, since the Poles were so fiercely competitive with one another and so keenly aware of the scrutiny they were under by the British that they never reported a kill unless it was confirmed by at least one other pilot. Still sceptical, Vincent decided he would find out for himself. On September the 11th, he was following the squadron in his own hurricane when the Poles encountered a large enemy bomber formation over Horsham, heading for London. Flying above the squadron, Vincent watched as two hurricanes peeled off and dived almost vertically at the German bombers with near-suicidal impetus. Startled by the ferocity of the attack, the German pilots broke formation, whereupon the Poles began picking off the scattered bombers one by one. Several times during the combat, the Poles would close almost to a collision point before opening fire on a target. The results were devastating for the Germans. Suddenly, Vincent declared, the air was full of burning aircraft, parachutes and pieces of disintegrating wings. It was also rapid. It was staggering. An experienced fighter pilot himself, Vincent tried to get into the fight, but every time he started to close on an enemy bomber, a diving pole would cut in between, and I had to pull away to avoid being hit myself. Remaining prudently on the sidelines, Vincent was finally persuaded. When he landed at North Holt that afternoon, he told his intelligence officer, My God, they are doing it! With observers in tow, number 303 squadron again notched up 14 confirmed kills in a single day. Nine of the squadron's pilots qualified as aces for shooting down five or more enemy aircraft. One of them was Sergeant Josef Frontisek, a Czech who called himself a Pole and preferred to fly with Poles. 
with a personal score of 17 enemy aircraft, he was arguably the top scorer of the Battle of Britain. Four of the Polish officers were awarded Distinguished Flying Crosses after the battle, amongst them Flying Officer Witold Dubanowicz of Number 303 Squadron, one of the best scorers with 15 kills. There was little doubt that this small concentration of exceptional pilots were capable of extraordinary achievements. 303 Squadron scored nearly three times the number of kills as the average British fighter squadron, with only one-third of the casualty rate. By the end of the Battle of Britain, this single squadron of men who had fought their way across war-torn Europe to seek refuge and a chance to fight again in Britain had become the most successful fighter squadron in the country. Success in combat can be mainly attributed to the years of extensive and rigorous pre-war training that many of the long-serving Polish veterans had received in their homeland, far more than their younger and less experienced RAF comrades that were being thrown into the battle. Tactics and skill also played a role. On one occasion, Number 303's Sergeant Stanislaw Karabin resorted to extreme tactics to bring down a German fighter. Following a prolonged air battle, Karabin was chasing a German fighter at treetop level. As he closed in on the tail of the German fighter, he realised that his hurricane had run out of ammunition. Rather than turning back to base, he closed the distance and climbed just above the German aircraft. The German pilot, shocked to see the underside of a hurricane within arm's reach of his cockpit, instinctively dived to avoid a collision and crashed into the ground. The Polish pilots were brave and reckless, but skilled, and they went on to fight magnificently throughout the war. On the 25th of April 1945, Number 303 Squadron made its last wartime operational sortie, escorting two Avro Lancasters to Birchtesgarden on a raid. Many pilots had been decorated, many had died. Our friend Mirek had found both his older sister, Janka, and a wife in England, so he stayed and flew with the RAF for many years after the war. Sadly, he died in an accident when flying out of Odium, not far from me, in 1956. What happened to some of those other wonderful Polish pilots is a source of pain for many of us who know the story. Some decided, or in some cases were forced, to return to Poland, by then under Soviet occupation. This often had very serious consequences. The communist regime, distrustful towards ex-servicemen of the Polish armed forces in the West, barred them from flying in the Polish Air Force and in numerous cases imprisoned them on trumped-up charges of espionage. One of the most dramatic cases was that of Wing Commander Stanislaw Skalski, the top Polish scorer of the entire war, who spent eight years in prison after initially being sentenced to death. It was not until Stalin's death in 1953 
that most of the airmen were able to regain their ranks and serve in the Polish Air Force. For all that had happened both before and after the war, there was no doubting the Polish pilots' contribution to Britain during its darkest hours. Their Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, who led Fighter Command during the Battle of Britain, would later write, had it not been for the magnificent material contributed by the Polish squadrons and their unsurpassed gallantry, I hesitate to say that the outcome of the battle would have been the same. Music by Sibirskaya Vichon. I'd say excellent pronunciation, Captain Nick. <laughs> look, I'm just going to put it out there and say, look, if there's anyone out there of Polish extraction who actually knows how to speak the language, I apologize. <laughs> I did my best, but uh, getting my tongue around any of those uh, names was just a nightmare. I'm I'm sorry. I did my best. I I did in fact listen to every single one on a, on a you know on the internet there with real Polish people pronouncing them, but I still don't think I got any of them right. Well, for those of us who don't speak any Polish, sounded great. Exactly, <laughs> sounded good to me, and I'm Polak. Oh, well, there you go. Well done. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think I certainly actually didn't really understand just what a fantastic contribution that. That those 19 squadrons and particularly three or three squadron made during uh, the Battle of Britain. Those guys were brilliant. Uh, now, they did have, as I mentioned, a, a very small concentration of fantastically trained and clever people. Um, so uh, it's a good job that uh, uh, Dowding eventually allowed them to, um, you know, actually become operational uh, and they they achieved all those um scores despite the fact that they didn't participate in the first two months of the battle of britain so you know when they compared those absolute numbers against other squadrons they didn't even have a chance in the first two months to kill anything so uh, i think they did brilliantly they're great they did and you're wondering if we had uh, many um polls listening to the show and i'm not sure what the time frame is on this but i'm looking at a uh, distribution of uh, downloads over time whatever that time is again i don't know but uh, there are 317 downloads from poland oh wow okay right might be the same person though <laughs> well they listened to 300 and what? that's not right they must have downloaded one show twice <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or maybe there's two of them and they were, they're only listening oh, to half of them i don't know well if it all stops from poland you'll know why okay well I'll keep i was gonna it. say just stand by for 317 angry emails about i mean even, you know honestly i and i find that i you know, second world wars is you know I, i'm a history i wouldn't say a, hit, a expert but i'm a history buff of second world war and i didn't realize Poland had an Air Force. That's pretty bad. Yeah, and what's more, they did a pretty do good job of uh, against the Luftwaffe, considering they were flying quite outmoded aircraft at the time. They shot that 170 uh, Luftwaffe aircraft in those first couple of weeks of the invasion of Poland. Wow. Wow. Pretty darn good pilots, I'd oh, say. Yes, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, let's see. Well, thank you again, Captain Nick, for all the hard work you put in those. That's awesome. Oh, no, that was a, that was a joy. That one, I enjoyed that. Oh, uh, there was a name uh, I think uh, associated with that. Did I mention it? Uh, who had suggested that? I don't see Damn. it in your um, in your note here in Evernote, so I can't help you there. Uh, okay. Uh, in that case, my apologies. It was suggested to me by somebody, and I haven't made a note of it. But uh, I will certainly make a point of uh, uh, putting that in the notes and uh, thanking uh, whoever it was on the next show, perhaps. All right. It was me, actually. No, <laughs> I was. Thank you, <laughs> No, it wasn't me. I can't take credit for it. Uh, let's if I can find it before the end of the show. I'll let it let you know. Okay. Uh, let's see. Tony, uh, wrote in and he said, uh, this article might appeal to captain Nick. Now I'm not going to say where this is from and uh, we're not going to read anything verbatim in this, but it's, uh, and we did cover this by the way on an earlier show. Remember the, uh, person down in, um, was it Australia? We're down under, down yep. under, yeah. Mm-hmm. That uh, a guy bought a an airplane, but it didn't have wings, <laughs> and he uh, rigged up um, a gas tank, uh, a jerry can, and put it inside the passenger compartment of this um, very small general aviation single engine airplane, uh, and then uh, you know a, a line going to the engine, so he could actually run the engine with the propeller. And uh, he was taxiing it around town and uh, parked in the uh, local pub's parking lot. And uh, <laughs> apparently the uh, local that's, police, that's yeah, they didn't, uh, they, they actually, uh, the article talks about the fact that the local police um, were kind of half laughing about it. But then on the other hand, thinking, wow, you know, you're driving this thing around. It has a propeller <laughs> You know, in the open, uh, that that can't be safe. And uh, Mark McKenzie, the local police sergeant, said, "I'm confident that will that he will be charged with something soon." <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Right. <laughs> we work out what it is. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, it's like the stories I've heard of people losing their driver's licenses for driving under the influence or while intoxicated, and then same person gets pulled over again for driving their lawnmower, like right on lawnmower <laughs> down to the pub or bar or something. <laughs> yeah. I've heard these stories before too. This yeah. one's yeah. Well, apparently this guy was quite a character. Uh, not, uh, not something that they didn't expect to see from this, this guy apparently. Uh, anyway, so uh, thanks Tony, but uh, I don't remember what show it was, but you, do you remember talking about this uh, in an earlier yes. show? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a ways I back. But, yeah. Uh, 5,000 U.S., not U.S., uh, Australian dollars plus court and towage costs. So that was an expensive trip down the pub. And we need to tell you that he doesn't have a pilot license, but apparently he wasn't really flying it. So I guess, do you really need one? <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. And it doesn't have wings. It's not really an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really an airplane? No. Good point. All right. Uh, James sent us a voice message via SpeakPipe. If you want to send us some audio feedback, you can do it several different ways. You can record something on your your smartphone's recording app and then attach it to an email and send it to us. Or you can do as James did and uh, head over to the airlinepilotguide.com site and uh, click on the link to go to SpeakPipe and then you can record your audio that way. And so let's take a listen. Hi, Captain Jeff and the crew. James DeVoy here. 
the Scottish pilot currently residing in Atlanta. Thanks for reading out my feedback last week. My apologies for the grammar. I mistakenly posted the draft version. I have been a long-time listener. I travel a lot long-haul, both Acme and Acme Red. Maybe Captain Neck has been my driver on occasions. Listening to APG is a great way to close the eyes and pass a few hours. Great show. Thanks, guys. I couldn't listen live last week, but on the replay, I noticed a few questions in the chat room around my comments, and I wanted to clarify them. Firstly, Poznan. Poznan is a major Polish city, exactly halfway between Berlin and Warsaw. It's actually a well-known city to any European Cirrus pilots, as it is where their European training and centre of excellence is based. Its main airport and the Cirrus base is Wawisha. Wawisha. When spelt, it looks like L-A-W-I-C-A. It's serviced by a number of airlines, including Ryanair and Lufthansa. Highly recommended for a city break. Great architecture, people and Polish beer. Secondly, there were some comments made around QNH and QFE. People were discussing them being military terms. Not being military myself, I cannot comment, but in the UK they are part of the private pilot syllabus. QNH, it's orange or debatable, but I was taught it stands for query nautical height. It's the altitude above mean sea level. QFE, I was taught, stands for query field elevation. QFE is therefore the actual elevation above the aerodrome. In the UK, when taking off or landing, the ATIS or tower will give you the QFE. Setting your altimeter to this will give you your exact elevation above the middle of the longest runway at the field. So if the field is at 521 feet, and the pattern or circuit height is 1,000 feet. On QNH, your altimeter will therefore show 1,521 feet when you actually reach the pattern or circuit altitude. However, in the UK, it will read 1,000 feet when you reach your circuit height or elevation. The QFE will read 1,000 feet. Of course, it's not a mental calculation, but on QNH, as you descend towards the runway, you have to continually make that mental calculation. How high am I above the actual ground? On QFE, it's always at the correct height. You touch down at zero feet. One less thing to concern yourself about during the landing phase. Captain Jeff, I hope my Glaswegian Scottish accent wasn't too thick and always understood. Safe flying and blue skies to all. I understood every single word, James. Thank you very much. And we were listening to him pronounce all these Polish words. Nick, this is the guy you needed to contact. Why? Do you think all those Poles were actually Scots in disguise? May have been. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Any, uh, oh, by the way, I just thought I'd point out that, um, uh, yeah, the Q codes uh, were used by radio operators uh, and they were adopted by the military. Uh, and... Uh, um, Queen's field elevation or query field elevation or whatever you do. It's just a mnemonic to help you remember uh, that QFE is field elevation. It's not actually what FE means. That's a kind of a random uh, code that. So, for example, uh, QNE, which 
doesn't make me think of anything to do with alameters is um, the pressure setting for uh, international standard, standard atmosphere, which would be uh, 1013 for us Brits and 2932 or something for 92. you guys. 2992. There you go. For you guys. I just pull a knob and it says standard, so I don't need to worry. Excellent. So what was he saying Cree like for the Q? Or is that just the way the Scots say Q? Well, it sounded like query. Query. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, it, what, what all he's been taught is that, that that's a way to remember mm -hmm. uh, by using that mnemonic that uh, uh, QFE is the one you set when you want to land at the runway and have your elevator read zero. I really thought for sure that FE actually did stand for field, ele field elevation, but hmm, interesting. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, I like no. the one uh, NH uh, nautical height. That uh, makes yeah. it easier to remember that. It's cool. cool. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, thanks, James, for uh, schooling us on that. And uh, Nick, did you remember who it was that uh, suggested that uh, plane tail? Uh, yes, I did. Daniel R. Now, I don't know what the R stands for, and it was some time ago. Uh, but thank you, Daniel, for that uh, suggestion. Uh, very kind of you. A smart very man. Idea. He doesn't want to uh, reveal his actual last name because then no i don't know, blame him God, we don't blame you at all <laughs> <laughs> all right uh ivor uh sent this in to us uh from iomtoday.co.im what is that uh is that uh ireland i don't know what i.im is anyway Isle of Men. Isle of Men. Oh, I bet oh, you're right. Isle of Men. Ronald's Way. Yes, I, 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 I was just catching up there. I should. I. I it was a. It's an island just north of Wales. Okay. Um. So yeah, I should. I, I knew that. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. A report into the incident that led to operator Van Air Europe losing its route licenses has blamed poor crew training and management shortcomings. The flight had left Ronald's Way for Belfast on February 23rd last year. The day Storm Doris hit the island in Northern Ireland, it had to turn back and return to the island, landing on runway 26 at 9.27 a.m. While City Wing operated as a ticket agent, the aircraft, a LETL 410, was owned by Van Air Europe, registered in the Czech Republic. The plane had two crew and three passengers on board. The report by the UK's Air Accidents Investigation Branch published last month said the primal cause or the prime causal factor in this serious incident was the decision to land with a maximum crosswind component of 40 knots which is approximately twice the maximum demonstrated certification of 19.4 even more than that twice yeah. Unbelievable. Analysis of the cockpit voice recorder concluded that the crew didn't discuss the evolving threat, which the AAIB says indicated a lack of training of crew, crew resource management, in particular threat management. The company operation manual also appeared to lack clear guidance in respect to problem solving and decision making. This became further obvious as the landing approach was unstable, but the crew didn't, doesn't discuss this as would be normal standard operational procedure. The aircraft also exceeded the limiting airspeed for flight with gear down and flaps extended. However, this wasn't corrected either. Finally, the crew began taxiing in a wind which was stronger than wind which blew a similar aircraft onto its wingtip at Isle of Man in 2007 and which exceeded the ground operation limit introduced after the 2007 accident. The 
AAIB also stated that insufficient weather information did not allow the crew to assess the storm's path. The operational flight plan did not account for the correct level of contingency fuel, and this meant the crew did not allow for a realistic alternate routing. Uh, The plane was reported by witnesses as unstable and tilting to the left, bringing the wingtip close to the runway before it touched down. The aircraft was then seen by eyewitnesses from the airport's fire service, which had been placed on standby, that after about traveling along the runway for about 20 meters, the plane rolled again and the wing came within one meter of the runway. And this is a high wing airplane, by the way. <laughs> so Yeah, it's not like the wing is exceptionally close to the ground. Right. <laughs> it has to tilt quite a bit. To, yeah. yeah. So if you'll remember, they, uh, they pulled the operating license uh, from this airline after this incident. And uh, now they're, we're seeing why <laughs> they did that. Anyway, interesting. Uh, thank you, Ivor. Anything else we want to say about that? I love the pilot says he had no concern that the wingtip or the propeller might have been close to the ground. <laughs> Perhaps he should have had. I wasn't worried about it at all. Whatever. Got two of them. Yeah, don't understand the problem. Yeah. Um, Dirk writes, Captain Jeff and Steph, I'm a retired anesthesiologist and always flew privately in my spare time. Recently, I was recruited to join a Part 135 charter operation and am now flying their citations. It was always a dream of mine to fly jets, but never thought I would be able to do so until recently. I am having the time of my life and wanted to let Steph know that there is hope for us doctors who love to fly and someday want to fly really nice airplanes. Double yay. The only problem (laughs) is he keeps putting his co-pilot to sleep. Well, (laughs) hazard of prior occupation. (laughs) Yeah. Captain Jeff, when you're in Omaha, I'd love to meet up for coffee, beer, lunch, dinner. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, let me know. I have some local knowledge. And as, as of now, I have March 29th off. Oh, he uh, obviously went to uh, Where's Captain Jeff or uh, Find Jeff or whatever the link is on the website where I put, post my schedule. And it looks like um, later this month, I have a layover again in Omaha. So Dirk, if you're listening, yeah, I'd love to. I'll uh, get in touch with you and we'll do some coffee slash beer slash lunch slash dinner. Probably all not all of that. Time. Yeah, all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Steph, you know, you can, uh, you know, after you retire from uh, doing your doctor stuff, you can fly Citation Jets or sounds, something like that. Sounds nice. Looking forward yeah. to that day. So, now Dirk's up in Lincoln. I don't know. I guess that's not too far from Omaha, but uh, they are different cities. They can just fly mm-hmm. his Citation down. That's yeah, exactly. He's got means to travel. So yeah. Um. Stephen writes, Dr. Captain, Captain, and Captain. <laughs> Reminds me of that uh, Spies Like Us uh, little sound where they go, Doctor, Doctor. Doctor, Doctor, Doctor. Yeah. It's amazing how important attitude and professionalism can impact the customer service experience. This is a follow-up to the unfortunate incident that Captain Dana reported about in episode 309 when a cabin cleaner exhibited extremely unprofessional behavior and a bad attitude. My wife and I had our own experience recently, but in a very different way. After Acme rebooked us at no charge to travel a day early in February due to winter weather from Boston, Captain Nick's favorite, to Amsterdam, when we boarded the aircraft, I was very surprised to find my overhead bin in the Acme 1 cabin already full. 
Fortunately, I was able to find overhead space on the other side of the aircraft. Later, I found out why the bin was full. In the middle of the overnight flight, I was awakened when something fell on me. I looked up and found a flight attendant picking up the candy bar he had dropped on me when retrieving it from his bags that he had placed in my overhead bin. Suffice it to say, I was shocked at this attendant's lack of professionalism, something far outside what I have come to expect from ACME. Uh, in contrast, on an ACME flight last year, we had the pleasure of having Roberta, a Boston-based ACME flight attendant, as our purser. Roberta has been an ACME employee for more than 50 years, that's five zero, and still going strong. I asked her if she knew my close friend and Cessna 172 partner, who had been a Boeing 767 captain, sorry again, Captain Nick, before he retired from ACME over 15 years ago. She had flown with him many times on international flights, and we tearfully agreed it had been a blessing to have him in our lives. He unfortunately went to pilot heaven a couple of years ago. Like all of you, Captain Roger had the right stuff when it came to flying skills, professionalism, and customer service. One final note, if you're interested in knowing what air traffic is above and around you, for less than $100, you can install a FlightAware ADS-B receiver at your home or wherever and see everything above you in real time. I live in Maine on Peaks Island, four miles from PWM, hi Micah, and am directly under the harbor visual approach to runway 29. Again, that's at uh, Portland, Maine. The more interesting thing for me is that we are also under the hundreds of aircraft that go to and from Europe every day on the North Atlantic track system. It's fascinating to see the airlines that are above me and where they are from, screenshot attached. Uh, when you install the simple receiver and provide an internet feed to FlightAware, they also give you one of their premium accounts for free. AvGeeks Explore. Thanks for all you do. Keep up all the great content and the blue side up. Another main man, Stephen Ward. Very cool. So, um... To get back to the first part of your uh, feedback regarding the experience you had with the uh, flight attendant and the bags and dropping the candy bar and that kind of thing, I, um, I, I wasn't quite sure, um, you know, what you were upset about. If it was because he put his bags in an overhead bin in the passenger compartment or maybe because it was the first class, business class area where maybe that, that was his his beef uh, I, I'm sure it wasn't the fact that he dropped the candy bar unless, of course, the no, no. flight attendant didn't apologize or whatever. But uh, I can see, you know, the flight attendants don't really have anywhere to put their bags except the overhead bins. But I don't think that that's policy for them to use the the uh, business first class area of the jet. So I could understand uh, being a little flummoxed about that. Um, yeah, I think it was just where the items were placed was what he was okay that's what i took from it anyway but. yeah you know when i first read that and i put that comment in there i didn't realize that it was in the in that business first class section um but that makes sense now it's always cool to know people like captain roger who has uh gone on to pilot heaven uh apparently he was a good guy sounds like a lot of people knew him and loved him where's pilot hell um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just curious. Wherever it is, I'm going there. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I we, we all may find sure out I, at some point. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure I got the uh, Mr. Preach plates for that one. <laughs> go around. Yes, yeah, you can a, always go around. Always it's go. it's a continuous, unending go around. <laughs> <laughs> and that you never get to land. Oh, that that would yeah. be awful. And there's always a queue in front of the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to fa- pay full price for everything. Ah, yeah, that would be hell for pilots. No, no, you actually have to buy a. You actually have to buy a newspaper. Oh wow, that would be quite frustrating. <laughs> yeah, there's an old joke that uh, you know if you if you can't find a free newspaper, you know, on board the airplane when all the passengers leave. Then, you know, if you go and actually purchase a newspaper, it's one of those things where you, you don't you try to do it so that no other pilot sees you or actually anybody sees you because you don't want to give the wrong, you know, the wrong impression. Um, let's see the flight aware thing. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, the ADSB receiver, uh, as you said, can be had for less than one hundred dollars. And then uh, well, you they're basically provide that. Yeah. yeah, you can get them like, uh, uh, what are they called? Raspberry Pi? Uh, yeah, yeah. A little raspberry and Pi and a little thumb. Uh, $30, $40 something. I've got a friend uh, just you know, a few miles away who does this. And he's he's pretty uh, good at amateur radio. And he's made a really good aerial for his little receiver. And he can pick up the traffic going into Paris, for heaven's sake. And wow. I think he gets a platinum uh, free platinum service with flight aware because he feeds into their uh, information mm-hmm. uh, thing. Very cool. I didn't Excellent. know uh, they were that cheap. So mm. Yeah. So get one today and get your free premium account from flight aware. Uh, let's see. Michael writes uh, NTSB. Oh, wait a minute. I need to, uh, A little bit of tidying up to do here. A little bit of vacuuming. Uh, let's see. Michael writes, uh, NTSB investigators used a quadcopter to document what a bus driver would have seen in the moments before a fatal crash in Alabama, the agency's first deployment of a drone at night. The mission was the first since the safety agency secured FAA authorization to fly a drone at night and was noted in a March 15th press release from the safety agency, which dispatched investigators to Alabama to the scene of an accident that claimed the life of a bus driver, uh, Harry Caligone. I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, What would you say? Caligone? 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 Anyway, I've Harry C. I've been limb too many times on this show. <laughs> yeah, so you're, just, you're now the resident expert uh, name. <laughs> well, I don't think it's a Polish name. Uh, so, yeah. The only person to die when the bus was carrying a high school band from Florida to Texas, which uh, veered off Interstate 10 and into a, a ravine in the pre-dawn hours of March 13th. Bill English, a senior NTSB investigator who has led the agency's implementation of unmanned aircraft as an accident investigation tool, said in an email exchange that the night, the night flights were conducted to replicate human vision as closely as possible using the camera of a DJI Phantom 4 Pro, an exercise known as a sight distance evaluation. Anyway, so it goes on to talk a little bit more about how they use the drone and um, such. And uh, pretty interesting. So and that was from AOPA.org. And uh, we'll have the rest of that article, the links in the show notes, if you want to read up on uh, the rest of that story. So, hey, you know, 
good use of a drone, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz sent this one in. Can science beat jet lag? Airlines seek help for 19-hour flights. Ugh. Airlines are working with scientists to find ways to limit body clock breakdown breakdown on the 17-hour flight. A wave of ultra-long flights that will let you or get you halfway around the world in one hop is pushing airlines to deal with the one extra you can't escape. Relentless insomnia, debilitating fatigue, and tormented bowels. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, also known as jet lag. Qantas Airways Limited, which will start nonstop service between Australia and Europe this month, is working with scientists in Sydney to find ways to limit body clock breakdown on the 17-hour flight. They've tried to make the color and intensity that jet's interior lights mimic dawn and dusk. Cabin temperatures and special meals aim to put passengers to sleep or keep them awake, depending on the time at the destination. Somebody told me also they were starting to play some of my earlier episodes of the Airline Pilot Guy uh, on the uh, overhead speakers to uh, get people to sleep at that point of the flight. That's an excellent uh, (laughs) problem is they can't wake them up. (laughs) Asleep for 19 hours. (laughs) Get off the plane. It's time time to get. The Perth-London route is the latest endurance test. As new aircraft technologies stretch the time a plane can stay profitably in the air, delivery of a new Airbus model later this year will allow Singapore Airlines to resume its 19-hour marathon from Singapore to New York, an epic stress test for mind and body. Key to the problem is circadian disruption, messing with the internal body clock that regulates everything from brainwave activity to hormone production and cell regeneration. And... uh, So it goes on to talk about the fact that the main cue for resetting that circadian clock is light. And uh, this is interesting. I didn't know this. There's there's a baked-in biological catch. The clock, the body clock, can only reset by about 90 minutes a day, even in the right conditions. So... Yeah, I've always used an hour a day, but apparently if you, you know, obviously if you can do it right, you can move it much faster than that, but... Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably true for the vast majority of people. I think there's a lot of variability there as well. So, mm. you know, some people are much more susceptible to jet lag and others are less so. But that's why I'm not allowed to fly past the Rocky Mountains westbound and past the Atlantic seaboard eastbound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like the shorter segments as well. And I've done, you know, I have experience doing those super, well, not super, well, I have done some super long haul as well in the, uh, my, in my Air Force days, but um, just not for me. Um, the last sentence here is pretty good. Uh, to create that natural light on an aircraft traveling many thousands of feet in the air at a very fast speed requires a lot of science. Windows? Hey, little, yeah, windows. Woo. Good idea. L- LEDs. LEDs. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, Liz, for sending that in. And uh, oh, you know, you were talking about the uh, photograph of the airport where there were some airliners parked, and we were tasked with identifying it. And we had all kinds of guesses. But Ray Williams, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta, seems to think that he knows what airplane or airport that was. He thinks it's Dallas Fort Worth. International. I think some others have guessed that too during the show, but oh, okay. I guess I just haven't been there. I don't remember seeing that 
terminal. I don't, you know, the terminals that I go to look different than that. So hmm. I guess the international terminal is different. Doesn't look, it doesn't look like Dallas to me either. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but we very rarely get on the West side of the airport. So that's, that's true. Where the, that's where the international terminal is. Good point. Good point. Okay. Have I gone through our entire list in this uh, feedback folder? Yes. Unless you've hidden some. You, you yeah. did. I have not. Um, best I can tell, we've been going for about two and a half hours, maybe a little bit more. So what do you say we just stop at this point? Sounds good, good okay, to me. So. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Let's do the uh, closing stuff. The uh, airline pilot guy com website is where you go to find out more about the show, about the crew, about the community, and more. Again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. We also have uh, apps for your smartphone, your tablet, for both the Android platform and the iOS, Apple platforms. And you can look for the uh, Android stuff at the Google Play Store and, of course, the Apple at the Apple App Store. And uh, social media. So I'll cover Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, you can find us at APG Crew. And on Facebook, that's facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. All kinds of good social media stuff happening there. So join us. And I'll toss it over to Hillel. Hillel, come on out. You need to do the segment here. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Now go go back to wherever you were hiding. And uh, I guess until the next time we meet, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista, baby.
the Airline Pilot Guide podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guide podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.